Great. So um, over the last uh, couple of weeks now, what we've been doing is looking at Oasis 9 Habits that are based on the fruit of the Spirit. The goal of what I'm going to say now isn't to be the climax to what we're doing. Actually, we're going to take some bread and some wine, some very simple things that Jesus asked us to do as we choose to follow him. And that's where we're headed in this service. He said, follow me. Are you willing to drink the cup I drink? Are you willing to lay you down your life? Are, will you, are you willing to take up your cross and to follow me? And he said, take, eat of this bread and this wine. In our busy world filled with so many smart things, so many loud things, so many bright things, so many sophisticated things, so much technology, Jesus still calls us back to simple bread and wine that remind us of what it is to follow him. Over these last few weeks, we've been looking, this is a whistle-stop tour for people who've not been here for the last couple of weeks or missed out, we've been looking at Oasis 9 habits and around the Oasis kind of little world, in all our hubs, in all our schools, in all our churches, with all our staff, with the kids in this school and in Johanna, we're beginning to explore these nine habits for life so that we become the kind of people we want to be. That seems a strange phrase up on the uh, screen, virtue ethics, live within a trusted story. But we discovered in the first, first week, there are only three ways of doing life in the end. You've either got to live by rules. You, you can have your Ten Commandments or your Golden Rules or whatever it is, but you live by rules. The problem with living by rules is they're always out of date, a little bit like a road map. The road map is always out of date. So what happens is you get in your car and if you've got a sat-nav, you turn on your sat-nav and the first thing is a screen that says, basically it says it in smart words, but it says if you crash the car following this, it's your fault, not ours, doesn't it? It's a disclaimer because they know that the map is always out of date. Rules are always out of date because they just map the past. So you can't live that way, said a great man called Aristotle. And then other people came along and said, well, we just live the way we want and we trust our own conscience. It's called situation ethics or consequentialism, to give it its big flash name. But that doesn't work because I'm not very wise and I make stupid decisions and I think I'm doing the right thing and I don't realize the implications of my actions and I only learn about them later and it's too late. And I get lost and I get sunk. So you can't live by rules and you can't make it up yourself because, to to be honest, we're too shallow to do that. So the only alternative, said Aristotle, is that you live within a story, a big story, a narrative. People live within some sad narratives sometimes. We box ourselves in. I'm British. I'm a Jew. I'm Palestinian. I'm Christian. I'm Muslim. I'm black. I'm white. I'm Asian. And that narrative comes to dominate us. Some of us have got a worse narrative than that. We've been told we were thick. We're told we're ugly. We're told we're old. We're told we don't fit. And we come to live within that narrative. It dominates to us. We've been chucked out of somewhere. We've been shown out of a church. We've been told we're not wanted. And that narrative comes to dominate who we are. And we are acting and reacting out of it all of the time, with sometimes without even knowing it. So we've got to live within a trusted story. That's what Aristotle said. Aristotle was a genius, I'm sure you know, that's how we know his name, you know. Um, 
a very famous Greek man. And um, Aristotle said this. He said, there are nine great habits you can adopt. Nine, Nine great virtues. He lived 350 years before Jesus was around. And he said, the greatest of all of these is Sophia. It's wisdom. If you can get wisdom, and as a habit, collect wisdom, you'll do well in life. You'll live well. You'll live successfully. You'll live the good life, which he said was the goal of living. To live the good life. To live well, well-being. And this word, megalopsychia, uh, which, we, uh, which, which is really about being magnanimous or benevolent or having a greatness of soul. He said, if you, if you live a wise life, and he talked about courage and various other things, he said, in the end, you'll be benevolent. It's the crowning virtue. If you've done everything else right, and you collected courage and wisdom, etc., etc., you can afford to be magnanimous. What we discovered on the first week is that Jesus came along and he tore up that book. And Paul, who followed Jesus in his writings to the Galatians, which we just read a bit of from the next chapter to this, but these are the famous words, but we just read the next chapter. Paul said this, but the fruit of the Spirit, as you know, you've heard this before, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we looked at it two weeks ago, I said, How many are there? We call it the fruit of the Spirit, as you know. How many fruit of the Spirit are there? Nine. What an extraordinary thing. Aristotle dominated the Greek world. Paul knew that. The whole of the New Testament, the letters, in some senses, are a response to uh, Aristotelian thinking. It's just they never say, we're writing to Aristotle. They, as clear as daylight, say it, as you'll see in a minute. And what they're saying is, Aristotle was right. He got the right deal. You can't live by laws and rules. You won't get far. You can't make it up as you go. You've got to live within a narrative, a story, some big overarching story that gives meaning and purpose to your life and acts as a guide or as a... It it steers you through life. It's your rudder through life. But Aristotle was wrong. It's not about wisdom and being benevolent and being courageous. It's about love and joy and peace and forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Not control of others, not wisdom. It's about these things because that's what Jesus looks like. And our nine habits that we're looking at through these nine services, a different one at this evening, are Oasis way of responding to that. But the fruit of the Spirit, same verse, with different emphasis, big letters at the bottom, are these things against such things, no law. Do you see? Paul's saying, if you live like this, you can really live. We do, um, I, I, was, I was in a group uh, this week and I was talking about this. You see, what Paul is really saying is you live like this, there's no rules and regulations. You can do whatever you like. In the little group I was talking to um, uh, 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 with earlier this week, I was just saying that when I was a kid, I learned to play the piano, but I learned to play the piano very, very badly, i.e. I am not particularly musical. So I can only actually play two tunes. I'm tempted to play one of them there, but there isn't enough time. It's called The Dance of the Tin Soldiers. I am stunkingly good at The Dance of the Tin Soldiers, I tell you. But it's all I can play. When I, if I go to that keyboard, I am pinned to those notes. I have to play them in that order. If my fingers slip off one of the sharps, 
and, and, uh, and, and goes to a natural note, it was sound wrong. I've got to make sure that my fingers hit all the right notes in the right order. And if you ask me to play another, I'll have to play it again and again and again and again. I have no freedom because I learned by laws. I learned all the laws. And that's what I'm left with. But I envy people. I'm sure that's not on the list. But I do. I envy people who can play jazz. I envy people who I watch play the piano. And it's like, like, well, like Emily was playing earlier. It's like, and, and you know, we watch Flick play or Mark play. Mark's over there somewhere, isn't he? So, you know, and, and others. Like, when any of them play, it's like they can't play a wrong note. They play every note all over the place and every note is right. It's just incredible to me. How can that be? And the answer is that music is in their soul. It's a habit. And when you've got a habit, you can do anything you like. You're set free. When you learn to live like this, go anywhere, do anything. There are no laws left. Paul writes all about this in the epistle to the Romans, which is rather long. Um, it's a great book to read, but it's complicated. The Dalai Lama made the same point as Paul does in Romans, but more succinctly, he said it this way. He said, he said, everyone has to obey the law until they're old enough to break it properly. That's what Paul's saying. Rules are for beginners. When you've got young kids, you know, when I had young kids, I know what it was like. Stand here. Don't cross the road without me. Hold my hands. Hold my hand. Stand still. Sit on that chair. Don't touch this. Do not answer the door to strangers. They're all rules for beginners. But now my children, most of whom are here, I think, do you know, they can cross the road on their own. In fact, it's essential. They can cross the road without holding my hands. They can answer the front door. We set rules for beginners until people can play jazz. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. So, you see, this is, this is recapping. So, where is the wise person, says Paul? This is Corinthians he's talking now. Where is the philosopher of this age? The Jews demand signs and the Greeks, Aristotle... He calls for wisdom, Sophia. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to everybody else. It's foolishness to them. But the wisdom of God, it's wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God, it's stronger than human strength. This, in a nutshell, is what following Jesus is about. It's not rules. It's not regulations. You don't have to learn endless verses off by heart. There aren't endless, oh, what do I do in this circumstance? I'm sure there's a verse somewhere down in Romans. Yes, chapter 4, verse 3b, I think, applies to the particular problem I've got now. No. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Do what you like after that. Play jazz. You're set free. So we're looking at these six. This is Oasis take I've um, as Jill sat there a whole team have worked on that these are nine habits and uh, Jill spoke uh, just uh, last week um, about being compassionate my task this morning is to speak briefly as we head into communion about humility about being humble here's a quote who said this 
Yes, it's Jose himself. What a great quote that is. If I'd have wanted to have an easy job, you remember that. Some of you don't know about football. Chelsea are doing very, very, very badly. They lost to Southampton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, they were thrashed by Southampton yesterday. But Mourinho still says, Jose still says, I am the best manager in the world. That's what he says. Technically, technically, of course, he's absolutely right. But that's what he he said. If I'd have wanted an easy job, I'd have stayed at Porto. That's where he was. Because I had a beautiful blue chair. He did. It was huge. It was like an aeroplane seat as he sat there. And we had the UEFA Champions League trophy. God first. And after God, me. No one can accuse him of humility, can they? That's how I... Here's another quote. This is harder to get. Who said this? Abba. Not Abba. Have you heard those words before? It's actually a song. Right? Who remembers it? Like, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble. When you're perfect in every way, it was actually um, it was actually a guy called. You should uh, go on YouTube. I I, um, I looked I looked at YouTube, but it was recorded in the eighties, and it's so cheesy, it's really terrible. But it was a great song at the time because this guy he wrote in the ghetto for Elvis Presley. He wrote loads of songs for Elvis, etc., etc., and he performed this one. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. In every way, I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Actually, there was a great quote from Jose yesterday who just said, my problem is I get better and better and better and better. They've just been thrashed 3-1, but there you go. That's self-confidence for you. Um, Here's another quote. It's the one we just heard. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given. And then sink yourself into that, says Paul in Galatians. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself to others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Um, we've taken that verse, actually, and it's on a truncate, slightly truncated form on the front of the news sheet. And we're going to use it through this month as we think about why we belong and what we can bring and make commitments to each other towards the end of the the month. How do we bring our creative best uh, to what we're doing? And this great passage from Paul combines the external with the internal because what he understands, you see, what I'm saying is you'll never get your external right unless the internal's working for you because you'll always be play-acting, in other words. I have to do the right thing in the right order. I've got to memorize it and learn it. But when internally you've developed these habits, it's like a fire inside you. You do anything you like. You don't have to keep to script You don't have to remember your lines. You don't have to think hard about what to do in this situation because you play jazz. You're doing your creative best in every situation. What's inside is bubbling out. I would have said before, it's like a Brighton sticker, a brick sticker Brighton rock. Do you know, um, when you, I used to go to Brighton as a lad four times a year because my dad worked on the railways and um, he was a ticket collector at Norwood Junction and he used to get four free tickets. And he used to take us, my brother, my two sisters, me, 
My mum, four times a year, we went for a day out at Brighton in the summer. That was our summer holidays. And we used to go down from Croydon to Brighton on the train and go on the pier. Both of them existed in those days. We used to go on both piers sometimes. And the crowning glory of the day was to get a stick of Brighton rock. You know, the kind of stuff that really rots your teeth. And the great thing about a piece of Brighton rock, like Blackpool rock, is you can smack it. On a hard edge, we did, on the train on the way home. You can drop it, you can suck it, you can tread on it, you can break it anywhere you like, but it always says Brighton all the way through. That's the goal. You see, that's what Paul's saying. Adopt these habits. Get them shot through you. Then what will happen, you'll be in those unexpected, difficult situations the way it's hard to think of what the rules are and what you should do, but it will come bubbling out of you. Because that's who you are. Okay, that I'm going to move on. That's all in Galatians chapter 6, following on from those verses about the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to take communion in a moment. But I'd like to tell you about this, the principle of least interest. Because I'm here to talk about humility. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing, you know. Well, as you can tell, I'm a very humble person, and so I thought I'd give you a few tips. Do you know, the truth is, we all struggle with this, and we struggle with pride, and developing these habits is a lifelong task, isn't it? But the more we work at them, the more we slowly respond out of them. I may have told some of you before, but this makes an incredible imp- has made an incre- incredible impression on me through my life. When I was first... Uh, When Connie and I were first married, I went to be a youth minister. Now, that's a bizarre thought in itself. So there I was, as in this church, I am the youth minister. Uh, But during the week, I had to do pastoral visiting because I was told to. And um, I used to go visit the elderly people. And there were two people that I used to visit every Tuesday afternoon. One was called Nora Blackburn. They're both long since dead. They They were in their late 80s when I first got to know them. And the other one... Uh, was a lady whose name I won't tell you, but, um, but I used to have to visit them, both of them, on Tuesday. And what I used to do was I used to drop off a tape, because that's what you did in those days, a cassette tape of the church service on Sunday, because they were both shut in and they couldn't get out. And what would happen is I'd go to see Nora Blackburn, and she was <laughs> delightful, and, uh, and she'd, she'd used to take hours to get to her door, so you'd ring and you'd kind of you'd stand there and write a book or something and then eventually she'd pitch up and you'd get in and she'd make a cup of tea or I'd make her a cup of tea to kind of hurry the thing along by, you know, reduce it by about three hours and, um, and then we'd sit and we'd talk and uh, I'd give her the tape and she'd tell me about what she, the last tape and she, she, sometimes she'd say, oh those songs you sing at the church now and all those guitars, oh I don't like that all that, no- oh it's not nice but she'd always say But it's brilliant, really, because when I used to go to church, she said no one used to come. We used to sing the stuff we liked, but nobody else liked it. But now it's packed. It's fantastic. And you'd have this great conversation with her. She'd critique what had been said. And if I'd spoken on the thing, she'd critique that. But you never felt she was attacking you. And you always felt, as you skipped down the uh, pathway afterwards, that you'd had a brilliant time. And then I'd go and visit the other lady straight after, whose name is not to be mentioned, because she's got relatives that are still living. (laughs) And it was like a nightmare on Elm Street. It was incredible. 
you'd go, to, you'd go in, she'd start moaning and groaning. Everything was wrong. I was late, you know. Um, I was dressed wrong. This wasn't the way to dress. This church is disgraceful. And she'd just complain about everything all the way through and be rude about everyone. You see, the thing is this. When you practice music, you get the outcomes come about. When, when Emily plays this morning, you realize she's practiced a lot. And now it just happens, and she probably doesn't even realize that she's doing it, but she does. But when you don't practice, what you've not practiced comes out. In other words, the habits you practice and adopt and work at, if they don't show themselves acts in your life as you get older, there's going to be something wrong. Why are some people bitter? Because they've actually practiced those habits through life. They've allowed those things to take root in their lives. What you practice will eventually become apparent in who you are. It already is becoming apparent. So the principle of least interest, what's that? I'd like to tell you about Guy. His name is Willard Waller. Willard Waller is actually dead. Um, he, was, he died in 1945, which is a pretty long time ago. He was born at the end of the 1800s. He's a fantastic sociologist. You should study him if you get a chance. Willard Waller was born, unbelievably, in a place called Walla Walla. Do you know where Walla Walla is? <laughs> it's honestly true. <laughs> Has anybody ever been to Walla Walla? It's a, it's a city in the States. It's in, and here's the amazing thing. It's in this, at Washington State. It's quite near Seattle. And um, so Willard Waller, his name was actually Willard Waller from Walla Walla, Washington. That's exactly. And uh, Willard Waller from Walla Walla, Washington became a sociologist. You can, he wrote about education, he wrote about family, he wrote about deviance, he wrote about um, parenting, etc., etc. But his life's work can, in some ways, be summed up in this, the principle of least interest. Sometimes people call it the law of least love. He called it the principle of least interest. And here it is. It's simple. It has two parts. I've put them both on at the same time to save time. You need to take this in. In any relationship, one person loves more than the other. Part two. The person who loves the least in any relationship, has most power. And conversely, the person who loves most has least power. That takes some thinking about, doesn't it? What Willard Waller from Walla 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 Washington, what Willard Waller was saying is, love makes you weak. If you want to sail through life and get your own way, be hard as nails. In any relationship, one person loves more than another. That was the result of his study working with families across America. The person who loves the least has most power they can manipulate. Even as I say it, you know it's true, don't you? When when one person loves another... In an abusive relationship, the person who does not love can manipulate and use that person. It becomes their power. Because love 
makes you weaker. It's hard to lay down your life, to walk the way of humility, because, I know you thought this, I don't want to be a doormat. I don't want to be used. In a moment, we're going to take bread and wine, and we're going to remember that the man we follow was nailed to a cross for what he believed and the way he lived. If you are looking to follow the God of power, the God who puts you in center seat, the big blue chair, the God who's going to make your life work out well so everything's always cozy with you, the God with big hobnailed boots on, you've chosen the wrong religion. You should leave the church and go somewhere else. Because at the center of our faith is a foot-washing God, a humble God, the God who lays down his life for us, the God who calls his disciples into a room to offer them bread and wine and begins by removing his outer clothing and stooping down and washing their dirty, dusty, smelly feet. And as I was saying the other week, this is no temporary interruption to the way that God really is. You know, Jesus came to earth and he lived this way for 33 years and he kind of washed some feet and he took a slap or two and he eventually went to a cross and he was nailed there and spat on and laughed at and died. But that's all over now. Now he's back on the throne of power. Jesus' life is not some temporary suspension of the way God is. It's the lived experience of the way that God always is. It's the outworking of who God always is. It is what this bread and this wine speak of. Christ's body, Christ's blood, Christ's life given for us. And as we take the bread and wine, we remember all the glorious, wonderful benefits of joining Christ on this journey. The forgiveness, the hope, the purpose, the meaning, the direction in our lives. Lifted out of our small stories, our small narratives, and given a giant, big, fat narrative to live by. That's worth living for. But we also fool ourselves if we do not understand the price of taking the bread and wine. Jesus says, take of this, all of you, eat and drink. Join me. Are you able to drink the cup I drink of? Are you able to step my way? Take up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life. Those of you who want to be the greatest, said Jesus, must become the least. Did he not? It's hard to miss this in the New Testament, isn't it? It's not like Jesus sneaks it in there once and kind of brushes over it. It's front and center, full on, always. Lay down your life and come with me. Take the blow. Don't return it. Go the extra mile. And Jesus does that as he hangs on the cross. Um, Just the other night when I was talking to Kate, Kate Hoey, about the library um, and I've been talking to the councillors as well and some of us have been talking to them 
And um, everybody says to us, that Oasis, you, we are, made, are making this incredible contribution to this community because not only are we going to take the library, but we're going to create some literary services. Do you know the literacy level, um, even amongst adults in this area, is extraordinarily low. So uh, we're going to work hard on literary services. And Kate was just saying to me on, on the phone, she said, she, she was thanking all you, and she said, Oasis is going to do all this, and because of the way it's likely to erupt in the community, you're all going to get nailed. And, uh, and I said to her, that's what we do. That's who we are. We step the way that we know is the right way to step. We got nailed by loads of people for trying to start this school. Do you know for do, do you know that this week and the week before we did two parents open evenings about 800 parents a night came. There are 120 places. That's wonderful at one level and it's terrible at another. It's absolutely terrible because every child deserves a great education and they shouldn't be shipped on a bus across miles. It's not just to have education in your local community, by the way. It's to have friends in your local community. How do you turn um, a, a place where, where people, elderly people feel alienated and they feel scared to go out at night? How do you turn that into a safe neighborhood <laughs> when all the kids know each other? And there aren't rival gangs because they're all mates. And everyone becomes proud of their neighborhood because they live there and they learn here. This is how you do it. So we're called to walk the way of Jesus and do that as a church. But I and you, we're called to walk the way of Jesus. If I love, I can be abused. If I love... I can be hurt. I can put on my armor jacket and prevent myself from serving to save. I've been that way. It's hard to serve people. You know, you have people staying with you or you have people, you lend people money and they don't give it back or you serve people and then they turn. You know all those things that people say. And the news is, of course that's true. (laughs) Have you only just realized that? That's the way it is. But we follow a man who was nailed to a cross because he chose the way of service, the ultimate doormat. But in that, he unlocks a different way of living and belonging.